Here in attend in Kundum's praise, I sing and thou, O Venus, aid my lays. By this machine secure, the willing maid can taste love's joys, nor she more afraid. Her swelling belly should, or squalling brat, betray the luscious pastime she's been at. That's a poem from 1724 called The Machine, or Love's Preservative, written by a guy named White Kennett. The machine he mentions is the object of our attention today, and it is literally sheathed in mystery. No one really knows where or when the first one was used. No one really knows what the first one was made of. Even the source of the modern name is contested. All there seems to be is the proverbial earliest reference or bit of evidence. But it's all a tease, because no matter how far back the evidence goes, the concept that men were putting things on their penises already seems to be very well established. It's going to be a fun episode because there's nothing more amusing than a man's relationship with his business. It's going to be an upsetting episode, too, because there's nothing more tragic than when a man's relationship with his business goes foul. Yep, just like art imitates life, there's going to be a little bit of disease and morality mingled in with our story. Today, we're taking a blunt look at the history of penis sheaths. This is London Court. Here is a news going to start with the obvious. The penis is really sensitive, particularly the glands or the head. Glands, by the way, is Latin for acorn. And this acorn has a really thin skin. It's called mucocutaneous tissue, actually. And for millennia, the mouse was out of the house, so to speak, exposed to hostile environments, replete with insect bites, prickly plants, and evil spirits. Disease. One of the most prevalent tropical diseases, particularly for the ancient Egyptians, was bilharzia, or schistosomiasis. Humans could become infected by coming into contact with fresh water that was contaminated with these parasitic worms. The initial symptoms seem innocuous, an itchy rash where the parasite was burrowing through your skin, then a dry cough, fever, muscle aches, malaise, kind of like a cold or a flu, like, I mean, nothing unusual. But left untreated, which was always the case in ancient times, it could become devastating. Kidney failure, seizures, and paraplegia in some cases. Something else the penis has been exposed to since the dawn of time is fighting. 
If life or death hinges on winning a fight, then you'd be smart to exploit your opponent's weaknesses and protect your own, particularly your penis. Let's not forget that the penis is also relatively important for sex, or propagation of the species. If a man wanted to pass on his genes, well, he needs two basic things, a heartbeat and a functional penis. So man took measures to protect it. But just how far back did that start happening? Well, surprisingly, that's really hard to determine. There's some debate over whether or not a 13,000-year-old Cro-Magnon cave painting from France portrays a man wearing a penis sheath. There's even more debate over whether the caveman is wearing it for the purposes of having sex. I think if, and this is a really big if, there is a penis sheath in this painting at all, then it was being worn for the more practical reasons we've already discussed. Protection from bug bites, from disease, from fighting. But what were penis sheaths? Were they wraparounds like socks? Or were they more like pouches that everything would fit into? Or was it simply a flap, like the proverbial fig leaf? And what were penis sheaths made of? Leaves? Animal hide? Intestines? No one knows! The earliest known example of the penis sheath comes from ancient Egypt. From about 2130 BCE, Egyptian men are depicted wearing the traditional male garment, the shenti, which was essentially a loincloth made from linen or leather held up by a belt, with a protective emphasis on the groin. Unsurprisingly, the next progression in penis protection was decoration. Well, why not? Seems like a logical thing for a guy to do. There's evidence, again from ancient Egypt, that penis sheaths were being dyed and decorated to denote status. I think it's fairly safe to say this was not an isolated or localized occurrence. More than likely, if men were dressing them up for protection, then they were decorating them too. But there's no actual proof of this happening any earlier than 1500 BCE. At this point, there is no evidence whatsoever that penis sheaths had anything to do with sexual intercourse at all. The earliest reference to a penis sheath being used as a prophylactic or to protect against disease for coitus comes from the myth of Procris and Cephalus, specifically in the version written down by Antoninus Liberalis around 150 CE. Now the key thing to remember about Greek mythology is that it was an oral tradition, so to date myths by when they happen to be written down is not really an accurate measure of their actual origin. Having said that, there are several different versions of this particular myth written down by several different authors from several different times. But only Libralis's version has the condom. Here are the basics of the myth. The heroine's name is Procris. She's stuck in a bizarre love triangle with her husband, Cephalus, and Eos, the goddess of dawn. After a bunch of crap, Procris runs away and subsequently encounters Minos, the king of Crete. Now, Minos has a small problem. You see... He is cursed to ejaculate serpents, scorpions, and millipedes. Sure sounds like a description of a sexually transmitted disease. The end result is that all of his partners die. So Procris instructs Minos to use a goat's bladder, or a glands condom, to capture all of the vile beasts, thereby protecting his partners. Remember, this version was written around 150 CE. The Roman poet Ovid wrote a different version of the same myth sometime between 19 and 1 BCE during the reign of Augustus Caesar. 
In Ovid's version, there was no mention of King Minos or a glans condom. So you could technically pinpoint the addition of the glans condom and our possible awareness of sexually transmitted disease to sometime in the 1st or 2nd century CE. But I don't know. It seems really conspicuous that such a monumental discovery would go undocumented in any form anywhere else. Antoninus Liberalis was the only person before the 16th century to make any mention of using animal parts, such as a bladder or intestines, as a condom. So you have to wonder if its inclusion in the myth maybe happened at a much later date. For instance, during a 16th century Western European translation? I mean, it's likely that humans were aware of sexually transmitted diseases from time immemorial. But did they know to use condoms as prophylactics before the 16th century CE? Well, all indications are no. And what about birth control? I've made it this far and haven't even touched on it. Well, birth control goes back to ancient times as well. But there isn't any evidence to indicate that men were sheathing their penises for that purpose. Women were always responsible for birth control, using pessaries such as crocodile dung or honey, or by using amulets and charms to ward off pregnancy. We'll do an episode on this sometime down the road, it's really interesting. But where does all of this leave us in regard to the condom? Well, I think the legitimate history of condoms begins right now. In the late 15th century, that is when evidence of condoms, in their varied forms, begin to appear in the archaeological record. It seems that something really crappy happened in the late 1400s, early 1500s CE. The discovery of the New World. <laughs> no, seriously. It was around this time that global exploration really began to proliferate, and sailors spread their seed far and wide, and then brought home a peculiar disease. There's so much talk about how explorers devastated New World civilizations with Old World diseases. But in reality, a cross-contamination occurred, and one of the things the sailors brought home was syphilis. On a side note, I was looking into the etymology of syphilis, and it seems the consensus is that the word was made up by an Italian physician and poet in a poem called Syphilis, Sive Morbus Gallicus, Syphilis or the French disease. But you have to admit Syphilis also sounds conspicuously similar to the name of the hero from that myth we were talking about. Remember? Cephalus? Syphilis, or the imitator disease as it's known, is a chronic bacterial disease contracted mainly through intercourse. But it can also pass on congenitally to the fetus. And it's pertinent enough to the story to dig a little deeper. It's called the imitator disease because many of its symptoms could be attributed to other infections and diseases. You see, syphilis is divided into four stages. In the first, or primary stage, you'll develop a small sore, firm, round, and painless. This is where the syphilis is penetrating the skin. The sore will last for a month or so, and then go away, whether treatment is sought or not. In the secondary stage, you'll experience skin rashes, sores in your mouth, and other parts of your body like the palms of your hands and the soles of your feet. There's nothing really conspicuous about the rash, it doesn't itch, and it could be so light as to go completely unnoticed. You may also experience fever, sore throat, headaches, and fatigue. All of these symptoms could easily be attributed to a cold or a flu. And just like in the primary stage, all of these symptoms will go away no matter what. And here's where syphilis gets messed up. The third, or latent stage occurs when all of the symptoms of the disease have gone away. 
You could go on for years and never show any signs of infection. Hell, you could live out the rest of your natural life and never know you have syphilis. Or you could be among the unlucky who progress to the nasty fourth or tertiary stage. This final stage of the disease will ravage your body and mind. It attacks your skin and bone. You could develop these soft tumor-like balls called gummas, which can vary considerably in size. Or your bone and tissue could be completely eaten away, leaving unsightly wounds. Late syphilis can attack and degrade your central nervous system, eating away at your brain and spinal cord. This causes terrible shooting pains to your legs and could lead to paralytic dementia, random personality changes, delusions, hallucinations, and loss of social inhibitions. In other words, it could make you, quote, insane, unquote. Finally, late syphilis can attack your cardiovascular system, causing aortic aneurysms. The aorta is the main artery supplying blood from the heart to the body. An aneurysm is a bulge somewhere in the aorta. If it bursts, then the massive bleeding could cause shock and a very quick death. So basically, you didn't want to contract syphilis. It was painful and could have a repulsive impact on your appearance. And in the end, it could kill you or even worse, put you in an insane asylum. I'm going to do an episode on insane asylums too, not to be a punster, but they were crazy. Syphilis did not exist in Europe before Columbus sailed to the New World in 1492. Presumably, some members of his crew were infected when they returned home in 1493. You see, the first documented breakout of syphilis was in the army of King Charles VIII of France during the siege of Naples in 1495. The claim is that the French were infected by Spanish mercenaries who were in King Charles' employ. It seems that the French may have been unfairly credited with the outbreak of syphilis because, as we've already heard, it became known as the French disease. In one of history's many ironies, the Spanish received similar treatment after the First World War with regard to the Spanish flu, which more than likely originated in the trenches of France. I know it seems like I've gone off on this long syphilis tangent, but it was such a scourge that discovering an effective treatment became critical. And there were all sorts of wacky things that came up. For instance, people were given mercury and would often die of mercury poisoning long before the syphilis could kill them. The only viable treatment available at the time was prevention, which brings us back to the condom. Keep in mind, no one was calling them condoms yet. It's in the 1500 CE that we start to find evidence indicating the Chinese were wrapping their penises with silk paper soaked in oils. The Japanese used something called a kabutogata, which is like a helmet for the head of the penis. Oddly, it was made from tortoise shell, or sometimes leather. The picture I found online looks like a glass dildo. I'll tell you, it doesn't look terribly comfortable. Check the show notes on blunthistory.com for an image. And in Europe, we have the first published description of a condom being used to prevent the transmission of syphilis. In 1564 CE, Gabriello Fallopio's book De Morbo Gallico, or The French Disease, was printed. Fallopio was a famed anatomist and physician from Italy. Yeah, we're talking fallopian tube-level fame. In De Morbo Gallico, he claimed to have invented a linen sheath made to fit the glands, or the head of the penis, for protection against syphilis. And it was fastened with a ribbon, presumably a nice, pretty, soft one. 
he apparently experimented on 1,100 men, and none of them contracted the disease. Okay, let's stop and consider just one of the many insane parameters required for this experiment, if, in fact, it's anything more than a ridiculous claim. Did all 1,100 men actually have sex with infected women? Did any of them? It's really impossible to pinpoint anything remotely close to a time or place, but it's sometime between the mid-1500s and the mid-1600s that the use of animal bladders and intestines as prophylactics becomes popular. Fish bladders or lamb intestines were most common. They would be washed, then smoked in your choice of hickory, spruce, or oak, and finally soaked in lye. They were called machines, and they could be purchased from your local butcher. The inventor of the machine, if there could be such a claim, is unknown. Some think it might be a medieval slaughterhouse worker who made the accidental discovery. Then there's the phantom Colonel Cundum. Legend claims he invented the machine for King Charles II, who was tired of having illegitimate children. But that's not true. There's no evidence that Colonel Cundum ever existed, other than in body poems like the one you heard at the very beginning of this episode. Colonel Cundum's story sounds more like part of the moral drama that's starting to unfold around the machine. Suffice it to say, no sooner than there was the machine to reduce the risk of disease, there were the moral objectors standing on the grounds of birth control, which to me is completely bizarre since the practice of female birth control goes back to ancient civilizations. Anyhow, the arguments you hear today aren't any different than they were 500 years ago. The more practical argument against these machines was their unreliability. They more often than not had hand-sewn seams in them, so they weren't impervious. And they were expensive too, so they weren't available to everyone. And so it would be that we were using animal intestines and bladders for condoms until the mid-19th century, when two men, separated by an ocean and three weeks, discovered the solution to this problem for everyone. Thomas Hancock received the British patent for the process on May 21st, 1844. Charles Goodyear received the U.S. patent three weeks later on June 15th. They invented vulcanized rubber which was cheap to produce, softer, more pliable, and durable. This is a monumental discovery. Hancock and Goodyear are still huge brand names today. Eleven years later, the first rubber condoms were made in 1855, and by 1870, they'd become very popular among the masses. But they still had seams. They were unreliable, and they only had a shelf life of a few months. You wouldn't want to tuck that away in your wallet for too long. The seam, it seems, would remain until around 1900 when the first seamless condom makes its appearance. And it's right about now that we can close the story on syphilis. 414 years after the initial European breakout, the first somewhat effective medical treatment is introduced in 1909. It was a drug called Salvarsan, and it was highly toxic. Seriously, 109 deaths were documented in the first five years of its use. Seems pretty bleak, but certainly better than leaving the syphilis untreated. And syphilis is only one of the many sexually transmitted diseases in circulation. For instance, 
Gonorrhea has been around since the medieval times. Treatments for this included mercury injections up the urinary tract. Herpes goes back even further. Hippocrates wrote about the symptoms of herpes sometime between 460 and 370 BCE. And we wouldn't even start treating herpes simplex until the 1960s, 2300 years later. So to be blunt, there are three options for men and sex. Gamble against disease, knowing that some bets are safer than others. Completely abstain. Or wear a condom. The modern version of which the world would receive in 1920 with the advent of latex rubber. With its higher tensile strength, latex rubber made condoms not only thinner and more puncture resistant, but also increased the shelf life from three months to five years. The first mass-produced latex condoms were made in the United States in 1929 by the Young's Rubber Company. They were sold under the brand name Trojan. The London Rubber Company began mass-producing latex condoms in 1932. Their brand name was Durex. You probably recognize both those names from shelves in the drugstore today. The first colored condom? Well, they came from Japan in 1949. Lubricated condoms were introduced in the 50s. And spermicidal condoms were first available for sale in 1975. There's a whole other element to the story that I've nearly completely avoided. That's the moral play surrounding the use of condoms. It's all very interesting and worthy of discussion. You know, you couldn't legally advertise condoms in the United States until after 1918. But if I included everything, this episode would be way too long. And everyone would think, of course, the longest episode just so happens to be the one about penises. And I don't want to be that guy. And there you have it. From myth to machine. That's the story of how man has basically protected his penis from the dawn of time. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For show notes, go to BluntHistory.com. If you like the Blunt History Podcast, and you really want to show it, please rate it in the iTunes store or on Stitcher Radio. You know what would be even cooler? Post a comment. I would really love to hear what you think. Friend me on Facebook and Google+. It's Blunt History. Or follow on Twitter at Blunt underscore History. If you prefer something a little less public, email me. The address is info at BluntHistory.com. No matter how you go about it, if you want it, I will be more than happy to keep you updated on the show. Hey, the song you're listening to right now? It was written and performed by James Rook. So was the show intro. I think you'll agree, they're bloody great songs. Thanks, James. Next time on Blunt History, come hell or high water, I'm going to tell you all about the Twinkie murder. Until then, I'm Greg Matelski. Take care. <laughs>